Running is your church, and Let'sRun.com is your altar. Thank you for making your weekly pilgrimage to the LRC altar for our Track Talk podcast, where each week we break down the world of elite running for you. In this week's podcast, we'll talk about the super quick Amsterdam and Paris marathons and wonder if they should be majors. We'll say RIP to the Foot Locker Cross Country Championships and wonder if the Newbury Park Boys High School Cross Country team could qualify for the NCAA Championships We'll talk to the man that ran three marathons in three days last weekend. 227 here in Baltimore, 231 in Chicago, 232 in Boston. The incredible Jordan Trop, my personal hero. Guys, I did a great interview with him. You're going to love it. I can't wait for you to hear it. I'm looking forward to hearing it as well, Robert. I guess I'll wait until I hear it myself to judge whether it was a great interview, but I trust your interviewing skills, and I think Jordan's a, is a worthy guest. We probably should mention that John did do an excellent interview with Emma Bates, America's newest marathon star, second place in Chicago. John, I'm about halfway through. Had to go to a wedding, coming back. I'm really enjoying it. We got her to talk about the stuff I hadn't heard her discuss previously, one being her divorce. As someone who's been previously divorced, it's tough. No one gets married. Well, you never should make definitive statements, John, but I don't think anyone gets married with the plan to get divorced. Gold diggers, Weldon. Oh my gosh. Of course I'm wrong. Of course I'm wrong. But yeah. So anyone out there going through a divorce, hang in there. Gets better. I have wonderful wife, child now. Probably the darkest time of my life. Emma overcame that running well. Got a great team she's on now. So that dropped as a podcast over the weekend. Even though we dropped it on Monday or Sunday night, it was listed as a like Thursday night. So some people's feeds got messed up, but it's in there if you didn't see it. Listen to that for sure. And listen to my talk with Jordan. I realized why, John. I, was, I knew I was in love with him before I even talked to him. I couldn't quite figure out why, but it's because he and I are the same. We're... 220 marathoners that didn't run in college. So we kind of like running, but didn't actually run on a D1 team somehow. Anyways, where should we start, John? I think I know where we should start. We've been asking for listener audio. I did check the voicemail this week. We had a Shelby Houlihan conspiracy theorist from a few weeks ago. That was the best one. Next person with her audio user caller who calls in receive a free pair of on shoes call 844 let's run hit secret option seven for the show audio but that's not the audio we're going to play today i was checking my voicemail yesterday and lo and behold there's a voicemail from the u.s secret service they didn't say if they keep this confidential i was helpful to them so i played this audio removing out any identifying details Regarding a post yesterday on uh, Let's Run, um, if you have just two seconds just to clear this up. Okay, Weldon, so what was this guy calling about? Does he want Boston Marathon training advice? Does he have thoughts about Shalane Flanagan or Mary Kane? What's, What's the deal? Oh, just like a friendly call. I just checked in, knew we have accessible voicemail, unlike Facebook, unlike Twitter. 
we could be reached. One eight four four. Let's run, as Robert always says. No, John. Wish it was that simple. But as anyone who's been is a active user of the forums probably knows and is on there all the time. There's been a crazy guy in letsrun.com the last month or so. You might have seen his post. First time I saw it, I was pretty freaked out. First time some New York Times sports reporter saw it, he's pretty freaked out because he tweeted about it. But essentially it's, I'm going to bomb the White House, kill the president, post multiple threads starting that. They'll get deleted. A few days later, come back. Then he said he's going to assassinate me and Robert. Actually, once I saw that, I felt better. I'm assuming this is the same person. But when you run a, a forum, what you learn real quickly, and this is what I think some people out there don't realize, the worst offenders, they do everything to get around being banned. They go to tours. They set up fake accounts. It's just very hard to police. But once he made threats to me personally, said he had information that Robert and I were pedophiles. I actually felt better about this. I'm like, this guy's just crazy spouting off against anyone authority instead of wanting to really go after the president. So call back Mr. Secret Service agent. We had a nice conversation. Kind of went through the history and he seemed way less alarmed. He's like, oh, this, this stuff happens. And I'm like, yeah, you guys must get thousands of stuff like this per day. And he goes, more. And that made me in some ways more reassured there's just crazy people who post stuff on the internet but it sounded like one of his colleagues might be someone who normally comes to let's run when they're not investigating threats against the president oh yeah robert doesn't know this part i've told john this part and so he's calling in like what are you calling about he's oh someone on let's run and his buddy next to him is like oh yeah there's tons of stuff on there man interesting stuff and i was like what is the guy a runner and actually is pretty good runner. Just did well at one of the world marathon majors. I won't say which one because some of you sleuths will probably try to track him down. So it turns out one of our visitors tipped off the FBI. Thank you for doing that. And got to him. He left me a few resources. I could email him directly, which is helpful. If there was something very serious, but the links he, that I was given to report or like generic links on the internet. So they deal with so much stuff like this, but I just, you know, want people to know we do look into this stuff. Okay. This reminds me guys of when I was in contact with the FBI, excuse me, the secret service, I think it was probably when Obama or Bush, no, probably Obama. Cause I was living in Baltimore. I think I just went out of my way to report to the FBI or maybe they contacted me. Someone from the local Baltimore office. And she too was familiar with let's run. She said she's on there all the time. This is gonna this is gonna get people to think that some people say, oh, let's run a right wing website. Not true. We did a poll in the election. It was like 75% for Biden over Trump. So we accept all right, left. I- I'm starting a new party, by the way. I'm not Republican. I'm not Democrat. I'm an American. Okay, that that gets me to my email of the week. And this person would like a free pair of shoes. I'm not sure if he's eligible. I don't know if I should mention his name or not. I think I I'll just go with first name, Max. This guy's had beers with Oregon stars. He's well connected to the running world. He's an elite triathlete. We call and chat just for fun regularly. Here's a quick take for you, Robert. CJ Albertson easily cost himself $250,000 by choosing to wear his sponsor's Brooks shoes on the morning of the Boston Marathon. 
That was the subject of the email. Went on to explain, basically, we know. And by the way, I apologize. I still have not published this article on Let's Run, but thanks to the Apple, the Lab Rat Rundown Instagram account, the professors at, I think, Stephen F. Austin have done the studies. The super shoes are not even, you know, Nikes are the best along with Asics, but Brooks's super shoes are basically not helping at all. And we even said that wrong, Robert. The, you got to study studies accurately. The, the studies said that Asics and Nike are the same level. They didn't say one was best. They said they couldn't tell that. So you got to the studies are in their infancy. Yes, they put Nike at three percent, two point seven percent, two point and Asics at two point five percent in the same category. They said they were the same, but they had Brooks in tier three at a point five percent. So there's basically a two to three percent econ- running economy difference between the Brooks Super Shoe and the shoe. And he was just saying, like, look. That's worth probably two minutes in a marathon, at least one. If he runs that much faster, does he win Boston? He's certainly the top American, right? It's an interesting take. There's a case to be made that he's the top American. It wouldn't be $250,000 because the winning prize, the first place prize is $150,000. But here is the, here's the other no, thing. No. He's saying he wins, but he's saying that if he has the Nike Super Shoe, he wins the race, and then that's worth probably millions of dollars over the course of a lifetime. And this guy would be a legend for stealing the race. They don't know he's out there. They let him get instead of two minutes ahead, or how far ahead was he at halfway? He's four minutes ahead, three minutes ahead. It's an interesting take. Two fifty, it'd be worth millions. But you've got to think about the dynamics of the race, like he still is that going to, it's going to make him slightly better on the Hills, but he still gave up a lot of time on the Hills. Right. And if he's in that pack, if they catch him, you know, around mile 20 or 21, as they did in the actual race, is he going to be able to reel off these 440 miles with the super shoes or 429? I don't think so. Like people say it's, it's nice to say in the abstract, okay, these shoes are worth like one or two minutes in a perfectly paced marathon from the start. I don't disagree with that. The best shoes probably are worth that over the worst shoes. But when you factor in the specific dynamics at play, I don't know, you know, it's going to play out a little differently. But that said, this is a guy, he was trying to go out very hard. And if he goes out and he's able to run 64 flat for the first half and he can close in 66 minutes or something, then yeah, maybe he does hold on longer and ends up finishing higher than, than 10th. It's just interesting to think about. We need kind of a fluke for an American to win Boston. Des got it with the weather. Here, he, um, um, uh, Meb got it with a big lead that they didn't cover. This would have been similar, a big lead. They don't respect you enough, and you hold on to win. So we shall see what happens down the road. By the way, in the Jordan Trop interview, he reveals that he, rare, he wore a prototype. His wife works at Under Armour. By the way, his wife's way faster than he was. She was like an All-American at Georgetown. Nicole, I forgot her last name, by the way, and we don't mention it in the interview. I apologize. Next week, I'll share it with everybody. But he wore a prototype of the Under Armour Super Shoe. He'd never even tried it on before. There's only four of them in the world. So I try to butter them up since I live here in Baltimore. Hopefully, I get to wear number five. I've never worn a Super Shoe. So I can drive down to their headquarters and be given gifted them. I'll be, soon be running sub-two-hour marathons in them. Wow. Sub sub three, I thought was bold. Robert has said now he's going to join Chip Kipchoge in the sub two club. All right. Speaking of fast marathons, I think we should go to the road action from over the weekend. I thought we were done with marathon season, or at least on a break until New York. You know, we had 
Berlin, we had London, then we had Boston and Chicago back to back. I was like, all right, I'm going to take a light, nice little break from the marathon world. Then I wake up on Sunday morning and I see the results in Amsterdam and in Paris. And holy crap, these marathons, they were actually faster and deeper than the majors. Now, okay, the field, London, still the cream of the crop in terms of the athletes that got there. But these times are pretty remarkable. Robert had it in our stat of the week, in the week that was, which you should read if you haven't already on let'srun.com. Here's a stat. Three times in history, we had seen five men break 205 in the same marathon before this year. This year, it's happened three times, including twice alone last weekend. It happened in both Paris and Amsterdam. The fastest time went to Temerat Tola. That's the fastest time of the fall. He won Amsterdam. He's, you know, you're probably familiar to runners, Olympic bronze medalist in the 10,000 meters, world silver medalist in the marathon in 2017. He ran 203.39. And the women's winner in Amsterdam, also very, very fast, Angela Tanui of Kenya. She was supposed to run Boston. She had visa issues, couldn't get to the start line. She runs Amsterdam a week later and runs 217.58. Both of these times on the men's and women's sides were course records. Times in Paris weren't quite as quick, but the winner, Alicia Rotich of Kenya, broke the course record held by one Kenisa Bekele. He ran 204.21. Women's winner in, Ethiopia, in Paris, Tigis Memu, was not as quite as fast, 226.11. But it blew my mind how fast these times were. And then I remembered, oh, wait a minute. Everyone has the super shoes. Maybe I shouldn't be as impressed. So what did you guys make of all, the, all this craziness? Well, it was cool to wake up and see these times. Be like, wow. You know, and it made me wonder, what should we call a major? You know, I mean, the World Marathon Majors are their own marketing group, the Abbott World Marathon Majors. But some of these races, are they better than the fields being put up at the majors? It's getting close. I th- certainly think Valencia is better, maybe Dubai than some of them. But I think you wrote it best, John. You put it in a section into the week that was that said, we've just got to. I mean, I already do this in my own head. I just sort of add a minute or two, one to two minutes to every time I see now. Yeah, I think the debate about whether these races belong in as in the major category is it's worth having. But I also think you got to take into account the weather was pretty much perfect in Amsterdam and Paris for marathoning, whereas in Berlin and especially Chicago, it was it was warmer. It was not quite as good. And then they also the, those races. Berlin, they went out way too fast and no one was really able to hang on and run very fast. That's why you saw a winning time at 2.06. But the fields, yeah, the, the field quality in Amsterdam and Paris, I wouldn't, I would say it's probably probably deeper than Berlin and pretty much on par with Chicago and Boston, if not perhaps even a little better. I don't see a huge difference in the, in the field quality in these races. You didn't have any huge names in Amsterdam? I guess Tamarat Toll is fairly prominent, but what do you guys think? Oh, I don't think the fields are quite... I haven't looked at it that closely. I don't think they're quite as good as the others, but maybe you're right. I was just going by personal best. I mean, I guess I didn't break it down specifically to see the accolades of every athlete, but if you look at, you know, sub-205 guys... Okay, so Paris doesn't really have the top names, but sub-205 guys, Paris 0, Amsterdam 4, Boston 3, Chicago 5, Berlin 2. Then sub-208, if you're going for depth... Paris has 14, Amsterdam 10, Boston 11, Chicago 9, Berlin 13. So I think it's fairly you know it's fairly comparable. 
in terms of what I think, the finishing time of the marathon isn't everything. There's all these other outside factors that affect the finishing time. But these are high-quality races. They put up money. I know Amsterdam did for fast times. When you do that and you get good weather, today's air, you're going to get fast times. These races are well-funded to begin with. So you can expect fast times. They're not part of the World Marathon Major, so I, I just don't give them as much credit. But the Paris Marathon, if you told me, oh, that's going to be part of the World Marathon Majors, I'd be all for it. Trivia question for John and everyone else out there. John, do you know there was a World Marathon Majors race this past weekend? A Candidate City World Marathon Majors race? John knows, know. every, John knows everything about track and field. Oh, Okay, John. Damn it. He does know this. I, I got an email about this race a few days before it happened. It was in Cape Town. I can actually read this email if you want well then. Damn it. Somebody emailed me about it afterwards as well. They're very excited about the Cape Town Marathon joining, possibly joining the World Marathon Majors. John, if, you're, if your email has stuff you want to reveal, go ahead. But the winning times, 2.10 and I think 2.25 on the women's side, which is a South African soil record. But this just shows, and these are at sea level in Cape Town. So this race clearly is not putting the money that these others are into the elite fields. And you see, you see that in, in the times. Yeah. And this email was from Mark Entz. He's a listener of the podcast. And he said that he wrote this before the race. I'll just read an excerpt from it. Cape Town's this weekend. As you know, it's a world marathon majors candidate. I'm not saying you need to preview it. My email is about the lack of love you showed when it was announced as a World Marathon major candidate. Full disclosure, I was born and raised in South Africa and have lived in the United Kingdom for the last 20 years. So I'm no doubt biased to a World Marathon major being hosted in the country of my birth. But he said, surely the, world, the marathon world needs and deserves a marathon major on the African continent. Goes without saying that over 80% of the world's top marathoners come from African countries. So I'm sure you can't disagree that Africa should have one of its own. That being said... What makes a major great? History, of course, which this one won't have. In spite of what the UAE will have you believe, you can't simply buy greatness, even if you can buy top-level runners to compete. I'm thinking Dubai here. History takes time. So what else do you need? You need a fast-ish course. That means sea level. That rules out the powerhouse locations in East Africa. Of course, you don't really need a fast course, but if you want to attract talent, you'll be somewhat limited with an altitude race. You probably won't ever attract the top guys who are either chasing fast times for glory or chasing fast times for qualification into bigger races, national teams, etc. Those guys will steer clear of an altitude race. So it has to be sea level. Thirdly, you need a city capable of hosting the event and being attractive enough, enough as a destination to encourage international participants taking elite and mass race. He's talking about the elite and mass race on this one. A race destination and a holiday destination. Cape Town ticks all those boxes. So what do you guys make of his case for Cape Town joining the World Marathon Majors? I think he makes some good points. I mean, if you're going to fly to do a marathon, I could easily see someone taking the kids and the family. Let's go to South Africa. We can do the marathon. Dad can do the marathon. Mom can do the marathon. Then we can go on safari. So you can get tourists wanting to go there. It would be nice to see one on the African continent. For me, the marathon majors, hey, you need the history, but you need the fast times. So there should be a minimum requirement for the elite fields. But Walden, I, I mean, I, I, 
it's weird. I look up now. We, we play it both ways. I look up. I see a fast time. I say, oh, they must have had a great field. But maybe they just had great weather, as we said earlier. And I, I got to disagree with something you said earlier. You said clearly they didn't spend on the elite fields. I assume they didn't spend on the elite fields when we because you said the winning time was, what, 210 and 225? But is anyone aware of what the winning times in Boston were? 209 and 224. One person broke 210. One person broke 225. Now they're running into a headwind. Time's not everything. I mean, I said it on the podcast last week. The Boston race is much more interesting to watch as a spectator than some of these other races because in these timed races where you're just going for a fast time, it's the same race every year. There's no drama. There's no C.J. Albertson. It's just run with the rabbits for 30K. You might as well just turn it on at 30K, say he was there, and then see who burns off. It's pretty boring. We need to get away from that. I think we need to have real races. One point that Mark made that I disagree with is that you can't buy greatness. I think in the marathon, you can. That's exactly what Dubai and Valencia have done. They've stopped pouring pouring millions of dollars into either prize money or elite fields, and it's attracted a ton of top talent. And we treat those marathons essentially as majors now. We talk about them. We preview them. Okay, does the Dubai Marathon champion, does it have quite the prestige? Are you going to be world famous for winning the Dubai Marathon instead of the Boston Marathon? Not quite, but people in the, run, in the sport know if you beat win the Dubai Marathon, you've beaten a ton of studs. And we saw when they cut their prize money, that field wasn't quite as good. I think that was last year. So I think that that's the biggest way to get a marathon on the map is you pour a ton of money into it and you start getting Jeffrey Camor and Lawrence Girona running it like they're running Valencia this year instead of defending their titles in New York, Chicago, and Boston. Yeah, people are going to ta- start taking it seriously. The one thing Dubai doesn't have is the mass participation fields. Well, they have some race, but I'm not sure of the numbers. But Cape Town had, I think, 59-something, 59-94 finishers this year. Fine, maybe that's COVID. Races are down everywhere. Prior to COVID, they had 9,555. I want that number to be bigger. But Boston was way down this year, guys. The Boston Marathon, one, they said they were only going to have 20,000 runners this year. And Boston's not as big as the other majors because they have limited space in the – quaint towns of what Hopkinton John's going to know them all, but there's not as much space in Boston unless you really space things out at the start, which they have done in the past. So Boston this year had 15,000 starters with an announced field of of wanting to have 20,000, but people could do the virtual race. Boston doesn't replace you once you've entered. So that sort of thing. My trivia question is, I want you guys to tell me the first year the Boston Marathon had more than 10,000 finishers. Because I'm like, Cape Town doesn't have enough. You got to be over 10,000 to be a World Marathon Majors. Really over 20, I would say. But I want you guys to tell me the first year the Boston Marathon had more than 10,000 finishers. 1987. Robert, do you have a guess? I said 1992. I guess I was on mute, though. Robert is closer. Believe it or not, the year is 1996, the 100th anniversary. They had never had more than 10,000 finishers, and they had 38,708. Now, that is crazy. That shows, one, how old school Boston is. I'm embarrassed I got that wrong because, well, Boston is my hometown marathon, but also I knew they had 38,000 in 1996 because I knew it was the 100th. Boston Marathon. 
So I was like, if they had 38,000, I knew it was also the biggest, but I was like, if they had 38,000, they wouldn't just go from under 10,000 to 38,000 in one year. I thought it was impossible, but Clio is wrong. I agree with you, John. A lot of what the BA, they're like the people who wanted the Olympics to be amateur and that sort of stuff. And I'm all for tradition, but you're like sometimes dragging them along, but it's crazy. They went to... 1995, 9,416 entrants to 38,708. I guess this is entrants, not finishers. They then stayed above 10,000, but did not cross 15,000 until 2000. Did not go above 20,000 to 2003, where it stayed. And... Until 2014, they went over 30,000. And they've been over 30,000 until 2019. They're still over 20,000. And then I guess we had 18,000 entrants this year. So, one, the money's got to be made up somewhere. These races have all got to be hurting financially for one year. The big ones obviously have reserves. They have sponsors. They can come back strong. But they're all going to want their numbers back up. Well, not necessarily, because Boston has already announced that the 2022 race will also be small, smaller, which to me is very disappointing. Dave McGillray said that could change in January, but assuming he wants to see a pill that cures COVID or stops it, which I don't really get. We're at an outdoor sporting event. I would require vaccination and a, and a negative test and say we're going back to normal. How many years are we not going to live lives? I still mask up. I don't go out to eat. But outdoor events where you test and require vaccination, it's it's time after two years to get back to, in the game here. Robert, I found your comment, Dave McGilvery's comment, actually, about if we had a pill that cures COVID, you know, we'd have a bigger race. If we had a let's be real, if we had a pill that cures COVID, 25% of the country would still refuse to take it and would could just call it fake news. But I found it interesting. The other thing I thought was interesting about this, so I reached out to Chris Lotzman of the BAA in their communications department to get some answers on why he thought, you know, the numbers were down for Boston. And he pointed out part of it is they, they just have a typical no-show rate of 10 to 15% of the people who enter the race don't end up showing up on race day to run. Like the day before the BAA sent out an email saying they had 18,252 entrants. Then the next day, 2,516 of them start with no-shows and just didn't run. I find it crazy. Like, Boston Marathon, that's a bucket list race for people. Qualifying as a badge of honor. Maybe these people aren't more the charity entrance. But I just find it crazy. You go through all all that effort to qualify and raise money for the Boston Marathon, and then over 2,500 people wouldn't show up. And that's more in a typical year when you have a bigger field. How many are they going to have in the spring, did they say? I don't think that they said a specific number but they would it would be smaller than their typical field i'm guessing probably around twenty thousand again but i don't know if they said a specific number and speaking of fake news john robert may not got to eat but he went to a super spreader event with me this past week and we went to a wedding so if we both get covid and we're both vaccinated so people who won't take the vaccine the vaccine is very effective against death but John, if somehow we both die in this week, keep the podcast going. Thank you. All right. I've been to four weddings this year, Weldon. I don't call them super spreader events anymore when all of us have been vaccinated and most of the activities are outdoors, but I haven't gotten COVID yet. And I don't think you have anything to worry about, but I will keep the website going should the worst occur. 
Johnstown surprised that it's 13% was the no-show rate this year. That's not surprising to me at all. These are hardcore runners you got to qualify. One out of eight gets hurt and doesn't show up. Plus, it's COVID. Like maybe you can't go, or the kid, your kid gets COVID, and you don't show up. By the way, our programmer Eric, he skipped Chicago to run in Iowa because his kid had COVID, or someone at the kid's school had COVID, and he broke three. Congratulations, Eric! Oh, is that why he skipped? I thought he skipped because it was going to be bad conditions in Chicago. He wanted to break three hours, so he punted to Des Moines. I don't know. Either way, I mean, congrats to Eric for breaking three. I just I don't remember the exact reason. You say he broke three, Robert. He snuck under three, two fifty nine thirty five. If your if your goal is to go under three and you do it that way, it's like major stress, but also major props. Eric, the runner of the week on Let's Run dot com. All right, enough marathon talk. Let's talk. What everyone wants to talk about, I'm sure, is boys high school cross country. Well, high school cross country in general, boys and girls. First of all, the Foot Locker Cross Country Championships, which is how I always knew them, I think. When did it switch from Kennedy to Foot Locker? Anyways, they're going to be no longer. They have a new name, the East Bay Cross Country Championships, which kind of reminds me of one of these Reebok Adidas things because East Bay and Foot Locker are owned by the same company. So this is kind of is a nothing burger. But it used to be when they were founded, they were the Kenny Cross Country Championships, which I think also was a shoe company, right? I see here here that Foot Locker began as a shoe division of the Kinney Shoe Corp. So this is just a rebranding thing. It means nothing. But I don't see what's the point. Like Foot Locker to me, in my mind, Foot Locker exists as the sponsor of a cross country meet. I don't even think of. I, I I don't know if I've ever even been to a Foot Locker store. I don't. Th- I don't order shoes from Foot Locker, the brand. But I do think of Foot Locker in my mind as this cross country host. They own East Bay. Like, what? I guess I should do my journalism sleuthing here and figure out why they changed their name. But, like, this is an established brand in the world of running, Footlocker Cross Country. What's the purpose of changing it to East Bay? I don't understand what this accomplishes. What do you mean? It's pretty simple. East Bay sells track and field products, running shoes. That's what they focus on. Footlocker is for your urban youth in big malls. And they sell a majority of basketball shoes and, and fashion events so it makes more sense they're having the one that sells track and field shoes be the name of the thing it makes total sense and whatever they're going to also reduce the numbers of people in the event from 10 per region back to the original eight but what's interesting to me here is who's going to be at this meet so for those of you overseas or whatever since like 1980, the U.S. has always had a individual high school national championships. Originally, it was like 32 boys, 32 girls. And then it became 40 boys and 40 girls. But then Nike started a Nike Cross Nationals, which had both individuals. Originally, it was just teams, and they added individuals. So some of the – if you're on a team, if you're a top individual that has on a team, you might go to Nike and not Foot Locker because it's hard to qualify for both, but some people do do both. Etc. This year, there's no Nike national meet. So I was thinking Foot Locker, this is their opportunity to really get all of the best individuals once again. Because, I don't know, diluting it between these two meets still drives me nuts a little bit. But I said it on the podcast a few weeks ago, Newberry Park, which is the boys, best boys high school team in the country and maybe ever, they have said they were not, they were going to be going to the running lane national championships, which is this kind of, 
new meet that's kind of trying to take the place of Nike this year with no Nike national meet. So Newberry Park is like recruiting people. They're trying to go there. And if they go there, they can't go to Foot Locker because they're on the same day. So and Newberry Park has three or four of the best boys in the country. Yeah, what I thought was really interesting, Robert, Newberry Park cross country, their Instagram account, they posted a post with their coach, Sean Brosnan, with an Uncle Sam style poster. And it says, I want you to race the running lane national championships December 4th, Huntsville, Alabama. So they're not just going to running lane. They they want the best of the best to come and race them, which I, I part of me applauds that. But part of me also is like, oh, it'd be really cool to see if they could qualify like four guys to Foot Locker. That would be pretty awesome. And I think they would. I guess they're into the team thing. And the fifth guy who's about 50 seconds back, they want to prove that they're the best team ever. I, I, I'm just old school. I would like to see everyone go to Foot Locker this year. But I guess we're going to have what we have every year. Some at Foot Locker, some at Running Lane. Was there any explanation why they went back to eight qualifiers at each region instead of 10? I hadn't heard that because I hadn't read the details of it. But to me, that's almost as big as the name change. I mean, you'll get used to the name change. Robert said, has it been Kenny since I was alive? It was in Kenny when we were in high school for a couple of years. Then it switched while we were in high school. So I guess I got used to the name change then. And I, I to, be, to be honest, I guess we're going to have to, to – I don't know. I, I – it seems like every year is going to be a slow depth eventually for Foot Locker because I'm still old school. I want to see everyone go to Foot Locker, but I'm also for the team. And if I'm a good individual, I don't know. I'm going to do, I, 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 and my team's any good. I'm going to, go, I'm going to do the next in most years. So I don't know. Foot Locker Kenny put a lot of money in this over the years. Nike stole their thunder. And, and it's just a shame that they can't sort of figure out a way to work together so that there's one meet with everybody. Speaking of Newbury Park, Robert, we had an interesting thread posed on the message boards this past week by Newbury Park fan. And the title question, could Newbury Park qualify for NCAAs? Because people are saying this could be the greatest cross-country team the United States has ever seen, high school division at least. And some of their results this year, the Clovis Invitational, that's the one that really stands out. This was... Two weeks ago at the California State Meet course, a 5K course in Woodward Park. German Fernandez has the well, the course record there at 1424. And you remember German Fernandez, one of the all-time high school phenoms in the United States, had the national two-mile record for a while at 834. He won NCAAs as a true freshman in the 1500 the next year at Oklahoma State. And remember, course record's 1424. Newbury Park goes 1, 2, 3, 4 in this race. 1429, 1433, 1434, 1443, with their fifth man back at 1515. I mean, it's one of the greatest performances in the history of high school cross country. And that got people asking, could this team qualify for NCAAs? Robert, before the show, you were trying to run the numbers with John Kellogg. Do you have a verdict for us? I'm looking over at John, making sure we, we kind of came to the same conclusion. I don't think we we ultimately concluded we don't think they'd make it. They've got a really good top four. I mean, their fourth guy right now, I think, was the best one in track last year. So they've got two, a twin, the Salmon brothers and the Young brothers. And Colin Salmon was their fourth runner in this meet, and he's run eight forty three for no. Long. He won the race. Because I must be looking at another meet where he was fourth. I guess he was just taking it easy then, because it, it didn't make sense to me that an eight forty three to thirty two hundred meter guy who was the best guy in track would be their fourth guy. But if you convert an 843, let's say they're all 845 two-milers, 
that's you know roughly i think john said 1405 for 5000 meters so that's pretty good but the problem is you've got a fifth guy which people are saying is going to be like a 1440 1445 guy i mean he's getting like 25th in this high school meet imagine what he how far back he's going to be in in in, in a college meet way 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 back so i think it would be almost impossible for them to get many at large points I think they'd be on the verge of making it. But I don't think they'd make it. Yeah, I don't think so either. I think it would be interesting that be kind of in the bubble area. But someone, one poster basically was like, let's say that on the track right now, they could run 1350, 14 flat, 14 flat, 1405, and 1440, which I think is bullpup. I mean, maybe it's a little aggressive, but I, th- I don't think that's that far off. Well, in 2020, the last place team at NCAA Cross was Syracuse. And their top five was 1352, 1406, 1421, 1411, 1415. So it's actually not that different. But I think the one difference, you don't have a 1440 guy at the rear. Like I think that would just, their number five would probably kill them in the NCAAs. And the other thing is they don't have like a real low stick. Like some, a lot of the teams will get in. You can just, if you're in a big field, you'll have one guy who's way up there and that'll really help drag down this door. I don't think Newbury Park would have that if they were running at a college level right now in an 8K or 10K. I think these guys, many of them are going to be big-time talents in college. I mean, Colin Salmon, who won the race, he said he's going to be joining Nico Young, who is Newbury Park's most famous alum at NAU next year. And then Nico's younger brothers, Leo and Lex, I mean, they're both very talented as well. I mean, these I think these guys are all going to be successful in college. But... Right now, qualifying for NCAAs, I just think it's too hard. I think the fifth guy would get like 75th in a really bad region right now. It is crazy how good their team is compared to everybody else. I'm looking at these Clovis Park results. Their first guy is 1429. There isn't a guy from another school across the line until 15 minutes. The front four just dominated, and they're kind of spread out by 14 seconds. But then there's not another guy coming in the race till 17 seconds after that. It's just nuts. I mean, could you imagine running a 14:43 for a full 5K in college and being the number four guy on your team? That's ridiculous. 14:43 for a high school is incredible. Number four guy on your team. It's insane. Shall we move on to our Shalane Flanagan update of the week? She's completed five of her six marathons. I think she's calling this Project Eclipse or something, whatever. But here, I'll run off the times for you. Berlin, September 26th, she ran 238.32. London, October 3rd, 235.04. Chicago, October 10th, 246.39. Boston, October 11th, 240.34. And then Portland, 10.18. So October 18th, she ran 235.14. And this was sort of a special, she did this on Soviet Island, which is one of her favorite trading venues. She had a male pacer for the first 20 or so miles, I think. And then Courtney Frerichs helped her out at the end. This was all set up by Nike. So it wasn't actually, it was more of a virtual marathon, but a high-end virtual marathon with the Nike support. She's got one left. It's New York. We're a little over two weeks away. And I'm going to continue to say, I want to see her with the elite women in New York and see how many of them could she could beat because she's running 230s very easily right now. I think she could run the 220s in New York and that would be competitive among pretty much every U.S. woman. 
Okay, a couple things. This Nike course, is it certified? Is there a start and finish? That's the thing with the virtual races I don't really get. You just go run until your watch says you're 10K. Well, we know they're not perfectly accurate. And a race, when you're actually racing, a few seconds can make a big difference. Maybe I shouldn't care about it. But I agree with you wholeheartedly, John. New York, she better be in the elite field. Pay her some money. Uh, if she's, I want to see sub 230 elite field. Well, actually, well, and it's funny you mentioned that because David Melly, he had a tweet about Shalane's watch because she showed the, uh, you know, as proof that she had done that, she tweeted out a picture of her watch and it said 26.20 miles. And if you're a real marathon nerd, you know that a marathon is actually 26.2188 miles, which means, and David was kind of joking about this. I'm not too hung up about it, but officially <laughs> it's not, not even technically a marathon. Well, no, I, I coached David at, tw- at Cornell and I saw this tweet. He said, should I make a big deal of this? She did not run the full marathon distance. Her watch proved that she did not run the, the full marathon distance. Oh, no. And therefore, Uh-oh. it should be invalidated. Now, she oh, probably warmed God. up since this is a virtual race. But, you know, we did get a WhatsApp message from a podcast listener who says he was annoyed by this thing as well because he said there were so many marathons she could have actually run. Why didn't she run like a Cleveland or something like that? But I think she's trying to give the publicity to the World Marathon majors and not the not those. So that's probably why she did it. But wait a second. Wait a second. Is Abbott paying her? I want that disclosed right now. If Abbott's been paying her for this thing, it's different in my mind. Still cool, but oh, I just Robert got me jaded. If she wants the marathon majors to get the credit, what if she's making out like a banshee in this thing? I'm sure she's getting some money from someone, but I don't care. I think this is cool, and people who are freaking out. Oh, her fifth marathon. You know, she didn't run exactly 0.01. Eight extra. This is a, something that I think is cool. It has people talking. People are excited about this. I always see these tweets after she does every race. People are like, this is so cool. I think it's been awesome seeing her run with the masses. She said that was her favorite Boston Marathon she'd ever done. This is not like some standardized thing where there are rules about it. She can basically make it up as she goes along, which she did once Tokyo got canceled. I think it's, I don't have any issues with any of this stuff. I think it's awesome. I just want to see her with the elites in New York. I don't think she's getting paid except for by Nike. And if she is getting paid, that should probably be disclosed. I agree with Weldon on that front. This keeps her relevant. It keeps her books, et cetera. But one thing that bothered me though, so David sends this tweet out. Apparently he got some backlash. He's now taking the tweet off. Like what in this day and age, we can't like make fun of somebody for running 0.001 too short on her GPS watch for a fun event. It's not a big deal, but she didn't run the proper distance. She should have gone an extra point one eight whatever it is so but in this day and age this is what social media is doing to people it's like oh my god i've offended somebody so i think it's cool she's doing it i got into it and but then when i found out that jordan trop was doing three marathons in three days i got even more into that and we had this argument with john i can't remember if i brought this up with jordan but on, on the friday 15 john's like why do you compare the two and i'm like just because to me it's actually really a key thing. Why am I so into Jordan Trop? Because I think that a lot of times runners, we give the elites a lot of people. John says he's not like this. We think the elites are so fast because they're tougher than us. I don't think that's true. I think they're faster than us. And if a non-pro can run three marathons in three days, it's super impressive. There are some pros out there who are undoubtedly tougher than 
regular runners like Yuki Kawushi. Yeah, no way. I'm tougher than that guy. The guys who are better than me in college, do I think it was because they were all much tougher runners than I am? No, I think it's because most of them were more talented. Most of the guys on my team in college trained at the same level. We took the sport just as seriously as all the other guys. Some of us were a lot faster and some of us were a lot slower. I don't think it's because the guys who are faster were tougher runners. I think it's because they had more talent. John, let me explain to you how this works. Well, first of all, I never broke 30 minutes in college. So obviously I'm not very talented. Then I became fourth in the country, a nearly 28-minute 10,000-meter runner. So obviously I'm very hardworking. You and Robert are probably lazy. I'm not sure what your problems are. But everyone faster than me obviously is more talented. So that's, the, I think, the runner's the kind of rule of thumb you should use. Anyone faster than you is more talented. Anyone who's not, yeah, you work harder than them. You're smarter than them. <laughs> you live the runner's lifestyle. I'd be, I'd be lying if I didn't at least think part of that. That was definitely part of my mindset in college. Oh, yeah, definitely partly true can i rent out employee 1.1 is that what steve is yeah well what are you going to tell talk about Employee 1.1 went to cornell and ran and the ivy league is very similar division three no scholarships kids do it because they love it he then coaches at a d3 school and it wasn't like top five in the country which i would say is probably pretty equivalent to an ivy league school division one so they weren't as fast and Steve said it was kind of eye-opening at first. He's like, wow, these kids work just as hard as the people at Cornell. They're just not as fast. So runners, get off your high horses. All right. One thing I wanted to talk about before we get to the Jordan Sharp fan of you, we had a world record yesterday. Are you guys aware of this? Sort of. And I'm upset that we didn't promote this on the front page or even on the podcast because I was really into this stuff last year. And we just... Totally missed it this year. This was at the Big Dogs Backyard Ultra, which is put on by Laz Lake. He's the guy who runs the Barkley Marathons. And this was the format that took off during quarantine last year. Uh, the backyard qu- quarantine Backyard Ultra. I think Robert had some flaming hot takes about the format and how this whole sport should be run. We were sort of jumping in. We didn't know that much about ultra running. But yesterday was the annual race in bell buckle tennessee and well it wasn't just yesterday it was a three-day thing they started this thing at 7 a.m on saturday and if you're unfamiliar with the format it is this you have to complete at least one loop well one you have to complete one loop per hour every hour 4.167 miles once you finish it you can do whatever you want but at the start of the next hour you have to be on the start line and start the next loop and there's only one winner. Sorry, there's only one winner. There's only one finisher officially. They just go until there's only one person left. And the record for this kind of event was 81 laps, which was set earlier this year, I think, by an Englishman. And we had multiple people break the world record in this event. It was pretty phenomenal. They got to 80 laps. Three guys had finished 80 laps. Harvey Lewis, Chris Roberts, and Turamichi Morishita. Then during lap 81, when they were going to tie the record, Morishita fell, lost consciousness, and he did finish the lap, but he finished it 30 seconds outside the time limit. So he didn't make it to the start line for the next lap. So that's how he ended up dropping out of this race. Tragic. But it left two guys left, Harvey Lewis and Chris Roberts, and they kept going until lap 85 
and that's when Chris Roberts finally dropped out. Lewis finished the 85th lap. So he ran 354 miles. Roberts ran 350. And this was just le- like absolutely legendary performance. I mean, they started this thing Saturday, 7 a.m. It ended at 8 p.m. Tuesday. And they had run at least 4.167 miles in every hour in the, within those two. It was just totally insane. I don't know how much these guys were sleeping, but what, one of the most impressive things I've seen, at least in my brief period following ultra marathoning. It seems like there's no time to sleep. I figured after you're really tired, it's going to take you like 40 minutes to run the four miles. And you got 20 minutes to go and you just keep going. This is pretty nuts. Is this the thing last year where they're like, some guy was running it on the treadmill and the internet went out or what, something crazy happened and he didn't know to start up again and then he lost. Yeah, he was raided. He wanted to start the next loop on time. I think he was out in the Czech Republic and his cl- t- timer got off or something. And so he, when he started the leg, you need to start it right on the dot at you know the next hour starting. And he started it a few seconds or a minute or two late and he got DQ'd you know, or he got you know, DNF. I was reading this cool thing on Laz today, sort of like his history and running. Just fascinating. And this guy would just go run place to place. Put a link in the show notes. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I just knew he did the Barclays Marathon. I'm not even sure. I've, I don't think I've ever watched the documentary on TV. Maybe that's something my wife and I will do this weekend. I'm starting to get worried about Laz because the message board thread on this was one that says, Big Dogs Backyard Ultra. Three guys have gone 325 miles. They've been running for 78 hours. Can someone run until they die? And I would like to put on an event like this, but I'd be afraid of the lawsuit, to be honest. I mean, it's fascinating, but what if somebody takes it? One guy fell and got unconscious? I just was reading another message board thread because someone said, would you not pee for 48 hours if you were paid $500,000? I don't even know if that's possible. You have to drink. They wanted you to drink three three liters of water and then try not to pee for 48 hours. And someone said, hey, you better not joke about this. And they linked to an article. Back when the Nintendo Wii came out, a, ra- a radio station said, hold your Wii for a Wii. Hold your Wii Wii for a Wii. <laughs> and you, they had people, they want to see how much people could drink, well, how much water someone could drink without peeing. And a woman did it, 27-year-old with two kids to try to win the Wii for her family. That night she was dead. She drank a bunch of water and somehow it became toxic. And so, yeah, I don't think I could go 48 hours without peeing. If I've drank three gallons or something, my, my bladder would burst. I think something deadly wrong would go wrong. But I do want to give a shout out to, I mean, obviously, all three, anyone who runs this event is kind of insane. So I'm impressed by anyone who even starts it. But especially Harvey Lewis and then Chris Roberts, who is the guy who dropped out, because this is the sort of event you can't just run a world record by your own. As soon as the second place person drops out, it's over. So to break the world record, you need someone pushing you, which I think is such a beautiful aspect of this event. So Chris Roberts, he ends up with the DNF next to his name. I think assist is the term they use here. He was the second to last guy. But without him, Harvey Lewis doesn't get the record. So I, I think it's really cool. You know, it's teamwork, but then at the end, it's just one, one champion. Maybe we should have a let's run front yard ultra because we're all beautiful people. We make big bucks and have hot wives, spouses for the ladies out there. We'll start smaller though. I'm not going, I can't go four miles an hour. How about one mile an hour? 
You have to run one mile in an hour. I mean, I could go weeks, but you could get some sleep in. That might actually kill someone. I don't know which is worse. But yeah, people are going to die at something like this at some point. I mean, people die at marathons, but if someone just dies more naturally of a heart attack, you don't think much of it. But did ultra race in China very tragically this year? A bunch of people died. Do you think someone could go a full year, one mile an hour? I mean, I think I'd go insane. Not being able to sleep more than like 50 minutes consecutively. For, for, if I if I had to do that for like two days, I'd go nuts. So, but if you make the monetary award big enough, if like everyone in the world tried to do it, you'd probably find some insomniac maniac who might be able to do it. But I, I go I go nuts. Do people get paid from this thing? I know lads used to like have zero money, but one of those virtual races last year got like jillions of signups. So, is there now prize money for these things or? It's just love of it. I think it's just love of it, right? I think that's how it works for these guys. Sponsor attention. There, there are some. There are some pro ultra runners who run this, like Corning DeWalter run it. But I, I'm not aware. I don't know. Maybe there is a prize money, but I do think a lot of these people, it's just because they, they like doing it. They like these challenges. All right, guys. I think we've done enough. I mean, there's some things we didn't get to. Asbel Kiprop is back in the testing pool. Who made the cut for Emily Enfield's wedding? may have to save that for Friday's bonus podcast, the Friday 15. If you love this podcast, become a let's run.com supporting supporters club member. Go to let's run.com slash subscribe. Again, let's run.com slash subscribe. You get our exclusive feature articles written by Jonathan Galt. Great shoe discounts and bonus podcasts. Follow special message board features. You can follow whenever I post, you can be notified. Whenever your friend posts, you can be notified. You don't have to go to page 23 to find all the nuggets of wisdom. And we'll talk about the Valencia half marathon this weekend, Robert, which has got some great fields. Ronex Caprudo, Mukhtar Edris, Yamzov Yahuwah She's the world record holder. And then Litizem Becky Day, 5K, 10K world record holder, making a half marathon debut. So we're definitely going to pre- that, preview that on the Friday 15. Great action in Valencia. Gide, now a member of the NN running team, switched over her allegiance, which actually is just a marketing thing, but I feel like it's just like a badge. When you're an NN running, it means you're really good. She already had the, the 5K and the 10K world record, so kind of surprised she wasn't on NN running. Don't forget, we have the Emma Bates podcast earlier this week in your feed, if you haven't heard that. She wants to run the world championships in Eugene, and so does Galen Rupp. Sarah Lorge Butler has the news that Ricky Sims confirms Galen Rupp wants to run the world's 2022 in the marathon. College cross country fans, if you're wondering why we didn't talk about Wisco and pre-nats, it's because we already did it last Friday on the Friday 15. Before I get to the Jordan Trop interview, I found his wife's name, Hannah Neskapor. She ran 421 in the 1500. And 949 for 3,000 in college. He says she's an All-American. Looks like she was seventh in the DMR, John. Does that is that All-American? Probably like honorable mention All-American. Not sure. Or seventh though you're scoring. So he, actually that is probably is All-American. Stand corrected. He's probably right. He loves his wife. They met at a high school cross-country camp. How cool is that? She puts up with him running while being also a doctor at the Walter Reed Medical Hospital, which is amazing. Um it's a cool interview. One thing that's not said in the interview that he told me right after we finished recording was 
because I asked him repeatedly, what can you do all out in a single marathon? His wife is running the Cleveland Marathon this weekend. He's like, I may go do it. I don't think that I will. So three marathons in three days might not have been enough. So if you see him in the Cleveland tracking, he's going all out, which would be really cool. But here's Jordan. Everyone, now we're joined by my personal hero, a guy I'm thrilled to be talking to, Jordan Troff, 29-year-old orthopedic resident, marathon runner, who one week ago accomplished the American trifecta, three marathons in three days, all super fast. On last Saturday in Baltimore, he finished second overall in 227.23, flies to Chicago, runs the Chicago Marathon in 231.54, flies to Boston, but after some problems, he had to drive to Detroit because Southwest Airlines was canceling all their flights. Flies to Boston, third marathon in three days. How much is he going to slow down? There's no way. It's impossible. He only slows down 19 seconds. He runs 232.13. Cumulative time of 731.30. That's an average of 230.30 for three marathons in three days, destroying the old world record of something like 814s. Incredible performance, Jordan. Thanks for joining us. How are you feeling one week after the fact? Thanks for having me. This really is an honor for me. I really appreciate your time. I'm a week out now, so I feel fine. Well, you feel fine. Have, have you... Okay, well, let's go back to last uh, Monday. Like, like, or Tuesday. Were you ever sore? I mean, I don't, I don't, I, it's been about 20 years since I ran a marathon, but I remember having trouble walking the next day. And yet you were not only walking, you were racing marathons almost the same pace as the day before. <laughs> Tuesday was probably the hardest day of all of them being post-race day one. And then I had to be in early and was pretty much standing all day. That was the hardest day in recovery, but it was just really general soreness. I was lucky. I was worried about when you do something like this, you kind of set yourself up for injuries, um, things like that. I was lucky to make it through with, with just some generalized soreness that resolved pretty quickly. Incredible. Um, by the way, I didn't, I didn't introduce you with your marathon PR. Your, your marathon PB is like 225. So That's it. I'm not a super fast guy. Well, yeah. you're super fast in my mind. So the question I asked the guys, you know, at the, on the, we have our Monday morning staff meeting, we just finished. And I said, what questions do you have? And they, they all said, what does he think he could run for one marathon all out right now? Like, do you have any idea? And I was asking that my, the question I was going to ask was like, you start off in Baltimore. Are you going all out in that race? Or are you thinking I'm going to run so much off what I think I could run? Cause I've got three races. Tell me the mindset for the first race. Yeah. So Baltimore, my, my priority was hitting a good time, being competitive, but not, not destroying the weekend with doing something stupid. Uh, so I was conservative that race, uh, but was still put trying to put in a solid effort. So my mindset was that race went out there. Uh, the individual who won, his name's Jeremy. Uh, he's a Baltimore local running guy. Who's good. He has like a 222 PR. And I knew he was going to take it out fast. And that's exactly what he did. He executed that race strategy. Perfect. He rolled through it like 71 at the half. And for me, I was not going to bite on that just because I know that that's just a little too much for the weekend ahead. So I kind of stayed back a little bit. I was a minute or two. And then the second half, I basically just focused on keeping him close, not doing anything incredibly aggressive or stupid that would compromise the next two days. 
So for me, it was just uh, really a priority keeping everything in control. And I think we accomplished that. So yeah, you run 227 and you kind of had given yourself this sort of stretch goal of trying to break 230 in all three races. So you feel yeah. pretty good. You get on the plane. Like, what time do you get to Chicago? So Baltimore, we were the least rush rushed. Going to Chicago, we gained an hour because we go from Eastern to Central time. And our flight left around 5. So we left at 5. We landed in Chicago around like 6.30, Central Daylight Time. Uh, so we had, after the Baltimore race, about 5 hours. So that was the most time we had between any of our races. So I took a nice bath, took a nap, relaxed a little bit. And then we made our way to the airport. And then did you have any idea like how you were going to feel the next day? I mean, had you ever done anything to simulate this in practice? To me, I, I would just start walking and crying and not even attempt it. But So for me, going into these, that was my biggest concern was this being uncharted territory. I didn't know really how I was going to feel and let alone how I was going to perform with with that. So I've done marathons before. So day one... After that Baltimore marathon, I, I knew what to expect in terms of soreness. So I wasn't really concerned that much. What I was really concerned about was what two was going to feel like and what two and then running another marathon was going to feel like. So that was my biggest concern was just the, the, the newness of all this. And I never really got myself there in training because I didn't want to risk injury. So the gun goes off in Chicago. It was a windy day. I guess you had a tailwind a little bit at the start, but a lot of wind in your face not a great day but all these races were a little bit warm right a little bit warmer than i did they were but it seems like must have felt pretty good you go out in 73 46 i mean <laughs> that's basically the exact same pace you ran the day before so were you not tired at all like i can't believe that so for chicago the biggest obstacle was it was hot it was probably 70 at race start and then 75 by the time we were done and then the wind was there but it wasn't sustained so you're getting these little spurts of wind that would slow you down a little bit, but honestly, it served more to cool you off. So it was a very welcome addition to that race. But my goal in that race was run that half like I hadn't, I hadn't raced the previous day. And I knew if I hit a good half, that was fundamental for hitting a good full. So that was my main focus was just putting in a respectable half and then just hang on for the rest of that race. And then you finish up 231.54. What, what, what are you thinking there? Are you a little bit disappointed you didn't break 230? Or are you pretty <sighs> Yeah. You know, so I felt myself falling off that pace during that race towards the end. My legs were just really tired. It was really hot. It was just kind of a culmination of being out there a while, a lot of miles. And I felt myself drifting more into that like six-minute pace and kind of off that 545 pace. And honestly, I was I was fine with it. I, I just knew I was putting in a solid effort. I knew I was really doing the best that I could. And my priority became just continue that. Just get to the finish line at, as well as you can. Put in this solid effort and really don't overthink the, the small stuff. Like coming in two minutes over that 230 goal, which was entirely arbitrary, uh, I was completely fine with. Really, I set that goal uh, with with the intention of keeping myself honest and and really just pushing myself because ultimately this was just a personal challenge and i just wanted to see how far i could go so the race is over but you've got to get to boston which you're going to lose an hour in the travel and then there's some travel complications so southwest apparently cancels your flight when do you find out about that and what are you thinking i might be thinking oh god the whole challenge is over (laughs) it it was a it was a few dark moments but i knew that we were going to figure this out 
So we ended the race. The race started at like 7.30. By the time you're done, two and a half hours out of the shoot, kind of reuniting with, uh, I was reuniting with my wife and kind of out of the, the shoot by that time. It was 11.30. And then we had rented bikes to ride from the hotel to the start the start line, which is also where it finishes. So by the time we got back to the hotel, it was about noon. And that's when we found out that Southwest is pretty much canceling all of its flights and including ours to Boston. So originally we were going to leave around three. It didn't give us a ton of time because you do go from central to Eastern time. So, uh, but now we had to figure out another solution, pulled up Google maps, looked how long it would take to drive 14 hours. (laughs) Or something like that. So if we left at that minute, we were getting there in like the wee hours in the morning, like 3, 4 a.m. So not the best option, but we were going to do it if that's what we had to do. Um, Then we started looking at other flights. Everything out of Chicago, because Southwest had canceled all their flights, was was booked. There was nothing. Nothing out of O'Hare, nothing out of Midway. And really uh, nothing until middle of the day tomorrow, which, which was a problem. So then we expanded our search to local airports. Uh, We're looking Cleveland, uh, Milwaukee, St. Louis, Indianapolis, Detroit. And Detroit had a JetBlue flight leaving at 6 p.m. going to Boston. So, and it was like pretty empty. It really wasn't expensive at all. So we booked that flight. And basically at noon, we decided on a 6 p.m. flight from Detroit with a four and a half hour drive ahead of us with a time change. So we got our stuff together and we moved. Wow. So it's a four, you had, it's four and a half hours plus an hour. So it's five and a half hours. You got to be there leaving in six. Oh yeah. You drove. Exactly. Uh, So we made up a little bit of time. Uh, The speed limit in Indiana is like 75. So we moved, but uh, we went, we got there with probably about 45 minutes of cushion. And so then you you get to Boston, what, nine nine or 10 o'clock maybe? Yeah, it was late. I think we hit the ground at around, 8 15 and by the time we are out of the airport and kind of moving on to our hotels almost nine o'clock so you've done two though in two days so are you thinking the third day is going to be roughly the same a little bit worse you know or is it going to be like i mean again one of the things that fascinated me about this is i feel like with running i've been around it so long there's so much tracking we have mamba ma splits there's like there's nothing that's unknown anymore we, we can see africans mm-hmm. training on youtube now i mean when i got started there was a lot of mystery about the sport now there's not any mystery to me there was a big mystery i'm like okay he slowed down four minutes but is he going to slow down 20 minutes what were you thinking about this third race after having done two of them for me i wasn't doing a ton of thinking about it i really wasn't overanalyzing the situation i didn't really think about too much uh, how my legs were feeling, for example, because I knew that would just take a lot of energy that could be devoted somewhere better, namely racing. So for me, I really didn't overanalyze the situation. I just ran two marathons it hurt and I felt my legs hurt. I slept amazing. My nutrition was fine. I mean, for me, it was really calories. That was important. I didn't really care what I was eating. Cause I mean, at that pace, my body's just trying to recover trying to take those calories and just replace them. So I really didn't overthink too much at all. And the transition from Chicago to Boston was a little bit challenging because my idea of post-Chicago was going to be purely recovery. Like go sit in a nice bath, go get off my feet, maybe take a nap and just kind of take it slow for the day. But what it ended up being was biking back to the hotel, sitting in a car for four and a half hours, running through the airport, 
sitting on an airplane for two hours. And then, uh, and then ultimately then we got to relax at about nine o'clock at night. So I just didn't overthink anything and just kind of took it like it, like it came. And, uh, I knew we were going to be fine. I mean, we put the training in, we were, uh, mentally, I was just ready to go. And then day three, you did this. It must've been the same was the same plan run a good first half. Cause you went out in 73 minutes yet again. Exactly. Yeah. For me, it was hit that half well and set yourself up because I didn't want to lose it or fall fall apart or compromise the outcome in the first half. I knew if I hit the first half, that would one serve as motivation for that second half and two uh, put me in a good position to to succeed in the goal. So Boston, the first three miles is downhill. I just started running. Boston's amazing. The energy at that start line is unreal. So I just fed off that for those first three downhill miles. And then when it started getting strung out, the crowd support was just unbelievable. So I really didn't have a good assessment of where I was at or what I was doing on Boston day uh, until it started hurting around like the double digit miles, 10, 11, 12. And we just, we just went from there. Are you running with a watch? I mean, most marathoners are, but I've read somewhere that you don't really train with a watch or anything. So do you, yeah, not I don't you? love the watch. You're so not picking my splits? No. Training wise, I do. Now, what about the very race? little in the race? Oh, hit- the race. No. I mean, I had a watch run in those races, all three of them actually, just because I wanted to know if I needed to know where I was going. Like, for example, if I felt like I was dragging, I want to be able to look down and verify that fact essentially. But for me, it's, um, it, it, especially in Boston, I knew I was kind of doing my best effort. So it really didn't quite frankly matter what my miles were. And the only thing my watch was going to do is if I was really slowing down or really dragging, that was going to be the kick I needed to pick it up. But otherwise I wasn't overanalyzing like the seconds that I was gaining or losing on each additional mile. I just kept it pretty simple. That's great. Just challenge yourself. I mean, that's amazing. Exactly. And that's the thing It's like people overthink these mile splits. And honestly, I think it does more damage than good. And what I mean by that is mentally, when you don't hit like a split, when you're at mile eight in a marathon and say you don't run a good mile and you look at your watch and realize you fell off 10 seconds or something like that. I think that can be mentally devastating for some people and compromise the rest of their race. I think if you uh, are just honest with yourself, put forth your best effort and just look at bigger chunks, namely hit that first half. Good. Don't worry about mile eight. Look at that first half. And if you hit a good first half, because there's a lot that can happen in, in, in half, I think it, you can, you can just, um, for me, it's just mentally to, easier to process. Yeah. And then the second half, you've got heartbreak Hill and some uphills, but yeah. I, don't, I don't understand. I mean, it blows my mind. You didn't slow down hardly any more than you did the day before. Which I don't know how that's possible, but hills for I some mean, reason are my jam. I love them. Oh, good. So the, the you said that energy, I mean, is energy I, I've never, I've run. Well, I pace. I don't think I finished it. I pace Chicago. I've never run Boston is the energy. Let's be honest. Is it much bigger in Boston than it is Chicago? Just the crowd and stuff like that. You know, to be totally honest, they were pretty equivalent this year. And I don't know if it was just the manifestation of taking two years off of majors and everybody was out there ready to go again. Um, but they were very similar in terms of crowd support and in terms of there were like no parts of the course that were empty. So the energy was just unreal this year, but Boston, it, it really does live up to its reputation. It's just being fantastic. 
And does anyone recognize you on the course as the guy that's doing three marathons in three days? You know, that was, so, that was the coolest part of this. It, it was, it was so cool. So in Boston, when we started, um, it was the rolling start. So it got strung out a little bit and the guys I was running with, like in the two thirty kind of world, um, guys were kind of coming and going, speeding up, falling back. There are a few packs up there that I would join and then leave or whatever. Uh, and I did, I was recognized by a few people out there and the support was unbelievable. Uh, they were, it, it, it was amazing. They're like, Oh, Hey, you're the guy who's doing three and three, like, let's get this mile or I've been following what you're doing. Like, uh, it was just really cool to, uh, to, to have that out there. I've never experienced anything like it. And you finished in two thirty two thirteen. Yeah. Was it just pure joy? What was the, I mean, how, what, what, what happened when you crossed that finish line? I was happy, but the short answer is nothing. I mean, it was just kind of mission accomplished as far as I was concerned, but, uh, we, we just did what we set out to do. So I was happy to be there. I was happy to be done. And I was just um, proud of the fact that we could get it done. Well, you say we, but wasn't it? I guess your, your wife's, are you giving her a lot of credit? For helping you? <laughs> really? My wife was a huge part of this, but I, I do know. And, and I say we, just because running in general, it is an individual sport, but there is just so much that goes into getting every individual to that finish line. Well, there's sacrifices that you make, but then there's sacrifices that your family makes. There's sacrifices that your wife makes. For me, we did have, um, I did have the opportunity to wear Under Armour prototype shoes. So I had um, the opportunity to kind of provide feedback on those, which was really cool. And then we also had uh, some cameras following us around, uh, which they kind of caught on to the story and, and were telling it as we went. So it was cool to have that aspect. When my wife first told me about that, uh, like, oh, hey, like, believe this group wants to kind of tell the story and, and go along. I was not super into it. I'm really not a, I really don't like the spotlight at all. And having kind of people follow me to three races was something that was completely new to me. I didn't, I didn't even know if like I was going to be able to like, like, I, I didn't think I was that interesting, but having that too uh, was really cool and uh the whole experience w- was fantastic so who was following you is it believe in the run the, the, the... yeah it was believe in the run so um yeah so they're gonna come out with a video soon that'd be cool they are and you know i saw kind of the, some of the clips that they gathered and kind of started watching them stitch it together and i'm excited for it. it's pretty cool and really kind of the f- for me i mean this is i mean i'm not an elite runner that's the thing and this is mostly personal for me. I just want to get up there and see what I can do. And the cool thing is, is um, I look to I look to guys in the run community that are kind of right where I'm at, or who are just pushing themselves. And, and that's what it is. I think it's this is a challenge, or this is something that I had the opportunity to do that people can relate to and kind of find some pearls that can hopefully inspire, motivate their running, or inspire them to get out there and just run a little harder, a little farther or a longer distance than they used to. And if we can do that for like one person, if we can just reach one person, just push them a little farther than they've ever gone before. Mission accomplished. That's what this is all about. Yeah, I, I agree. Totally. I mean, I, I think that I kind of, you know, Shalene Flanagan was doing these six marathons, all six majors this fall. And she was doing, mm-hmm. so when I heard about that at first, I kind of thought, ah, uh, wasn't sure if I was going to be into it. It was kind of like that might be a PR stunt. Then she started doing it. I'm like, wait, she's got to run a marathon every week. This is pretty cool. Then I'm like, what is she going to do on back-to-back days? 
So I was pretty yeah, into that. Yeah, and she crushed it. It was crazy. Yeah. She's so but then I she, But then I hear about crazy. you, and it, I was getting more into it. I had a sort of, not disagreement, but discussion with my with Jonathan Galt, our staff writer, because he's like, why are you so into this Jordan guy? Because I'm like, to me, like, he's totally an amateur. Like, he's doing this just to see what he can do. And I, I've always sort of, I don't know, I think there's some people that think that the pro runners are, like, tougher than the average runners. And... I, I've never believed that. I think they're more talented, um, but I, there's some super tough people. I mean, one year my brother won their Marine Corps marathon, and I was walking out of there, slowest winning time ever at the time. I, th- I think it was like 1997 or 1998. But I had this gigantic, like six foot trophy they gave him, and I'm carrying <laughs> it out of the place. And there's like this 60 year old woman. She's like, "Is that your trophy?" And I was like, "No, it's my brother's." She's like, "Oh my god, he won the race! That's the most amazing thing ever. He must be worked so hard." And I said, "Ma'am." you know, I'm 22 at the time or something. I was like, you, you, I asked her what she did. She did like four and a half hours. I was like a six year old woman running four and a half hours to me is amazing. Yeah. Like I've never run yeah. four and a half hours. So I think it's wonderful about the sport is how we all can take pride in, in what we do do. So I was going to ask you about the shoes. You, you, you did mention it. You're wearing an, I guess our Under Armour has a prototype of a super shoe, which yeah. is great. Cause I think all these companies need them. How big of a help was that? I mean, I can't, I don't think he would have, well, I don't know. Did anyone ever try to run marathons in back-to-back days without the super shoes? But how big of a factor do you think those shoes are in sort of helping you recover? Would it be possible without them? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So for me, I used to train and race in the same shoes really up until 2019. Marine Corps 2019 was the first super shoe race I did. I did a pair of the Nikes, the next percents. Um, They're a game changer. It's a hundred percent for sure. For sure. I, um, for this, the, the way I came about wearing the Under Armour prototypes was purely kind of through my wife. She works in the run department at Under Armour. Um, very in touch with the community. She does like signing of all their professional athletes and all of that. I'm not sponsored by Under Armour. My life's just very simple and I like it that way. But she was like, we had these new super shoes that are coming out. Uh, you want to take them for a spin? Like when we do this and for me, I was like, absolutely. That sounds, if I can help you guys build these shoes or whatever, or just provide some basic feedback, let's go for it. So I had that opportunity and they performed wonderfully. It was amazing. They're super comfortable. Um, that was honestly something that I was, it was an uncertainty. And this whole thing was, I was wearing a pair of shoes that are basically untested. Like there's three pairs in existence. Like these things came off the press, like, that week are they going to perform and are you going to be able to run three marathons in them and for me um uh, i was going to find out and that's ultimately what it came to there's never a point when i was running that i wished i was in a different shoe they were really really performing well they're very comfortable and i think they kept my legs in really good shape and now my point of reference is i've run a few races uh like an ironman uh, um, a few marathons in the next percents um and that was really my only super shoe experience. And then uh, these were like absolutely on par with that. So I'm excited to see what they're, I'm excited the direction they're headed and I'm excited to see what they're going to do from here with these. But I think they're going to be a real contender in the run space. But for me, it was just an opportunity to kind of do something cool, help my wife out, try a new pair of shoes. And uh, it's, it's all for fun. So it was great. 
Well, that's cool because actually after I talked to you, I'm supposed to talk to this guy who did a shoe study comparing all the super shoes because – Oh, that's awesome. I'm going to listen to that. Yeah. I had the opportunity to run uh, just around the block in uh, several different super shoes. And it's really interesting, kind of the different feels and the different fits and um, just all the different super shoes. And I think everybody can find one that, that they really like. Well, good. All right. A f- few questions before we get out of here. I think I asked yeah. you, but we, I, didn't, I didn't make you answer it. Were you in the shape of your life for this? What could you, my employee wanted to know, why couldn't you, what would you run right now all out in a, in a single marathon? Or why didn't you do that? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I don't know what I could do all out. I mean, my goals for that, I kind of set my, I, I like to have seasons. So I like to do like a fall season, a spring season. And really my goal is just take this running thing as far as you can go. So it's not a priority. Work's very busy, and it it, it really requires kind of dedication and, and most of my time. So running is somewhat casual for me. I'm not super regimented with my nutrition, not super regimented with my miles, with my training. I don't write anything down just because I open my book and I see three empty days, and I just I just don't need to see that, you know. But uh, for me, I did a lot of high volume training. It was complicated a little bit this summer. I did an Ironman this fall. That kind of brought in my cross-training experience, spent time in the pool, spent time on the bike. Um, and then I was supposed to do marathon to stop as well. But because of COVID stuff and restrictions, essentially, I'm doing that in the spring now. So I was I didn't really know how to train for this. But I knew uh, if I put the work in, I, I hit miles when I could. And I did the right things, took care of myself, avoided injury. That was my biggest concern because I was hitting higher mileage than I think I ever have before. Uh, I would be fine. So I I do think I am in the shape of my life, but uh, I didn't really do anything super specifically geared towards these three challenges. And if I had to run a marathon all out right now, I don't know what I would hit. I've kind of been dabbling with the idea of doing that this fall. But at the same time, I'm still trying to feel my body out. I'm really, really being very careful versus racing a marathon all out right now versus just settling down and getting ready for a spring season. So we'll see. I'm trying to shake it out these next few days, but uh, I don't have a good answer. We would would have to see. (laughs) How many days did you take off after the race? I mean, you're back to running again already? Yeah, I am. I'm just... um, kind of cruising for me. I love running in the fall. The weather's like perfect right now. The leaves are changing. Uh, it's just so relaxing. It's so amazing. But, uh, I took three days off really not by choice kind of work. Uh, of course, um, picked up those last, those three days. So I took three days off and then I've run the past three days. Johns Hopkins, uh, they did a profile of you after you won the Baltimore marathon a few years ago in their alumni magazine. And it says, who needs running coaches, training programs, and set mileage goals? Not Jordan. His diet, whatever. Pizza, beer, all fine. He runs naked. No headphones or GPS watch to record running data. This past summer, he estimates he ran 90 to 100 miles per week. And he sets mm-hmm. one day aside for rest. So do you still stick to that six days a week of running? How much do you think you were running prior to this race? And do you not have a training plan? You just do what you feel every day? Is that true? Or do you have anyone coaching you? Yeah, literally. I do kind of what I feel like <laughs> running for me is fun. Um, and I do kind of like the competitive aspect of it as well. I have upgraded to a GPS watch. I don't, the thing is, is 
like when I roll out of the house, I don't have time for this to like acquire satellites. So it's, it's just kind of a timekeeper for me and it's r- relatively close in terms of distance. But, um, for me, it's, uh, every rotation in the hospital that I'm in, in my residency is different. So some rotations, I have a whole bunch of time, some rotations, I really don't. And I'm in the hospital for 30 hours, 24 hours at a time. Um, so it really kind of depends, uh, what I'm doing in that like specific time that, that determines what my training will be. So for example, when I was on my trauma rotation in the spring, I was taking overnight call, uh, probably two days a week. The hours were unpredictable, had to go in early to round. So my training was very unregimented. I ran when I could, if I got out of the hospital and it was light out, I went running and it was, it was great. But that also feeds into sometimes you're standing in the OR all day, you're not eating. So that you kind of have to be very casual about too. You might've had a granola bar and a piece of pizza in the lounge all day, not really stuff that's good for you. So it's that adaptability has really shaped a lot of my training, a lot of my mentality with running. And then sometimes I'm on rotations with scheduled surgeries that I know are going to take two hours and I'll be home at four o'clock and things like that. That's a lot easier to plan for. But uh, this fall, I was on a research block, had, had, had more time than usual and was able to uh, at least consistently hit runs. So what do you think the mileage got up to? I think I'd say I was, I was over 100 because I do like over 20 miles three times a week and then kind of fill in the blanks. I would do some workouts when I felt like it, but I was I, my biggest fear with this was getting hurt. So I was in high, high volume miles and I knew I was pushing it. And when my body was feeling it, like when it wasn't a good idea to go out there and just push it, I just didn't because I'd rather not get hurt and be able to do these three than really, really push it, get hurt. And and the whole thing's compromised. So I'd say over a hundred, probably somewhere between hundred and one twenty. All right. Let's take you back to your start in running. Um, when I was coaching at Cornell, I used to always ask the guys I was recruiting, like, hey, running's not that popular for sport. How'd you get into it? But Johns Hopkins, what my profile has already told me, seventh grade, CYO, cross country. And then you kind of stuck with yeah. it since then. So doesn't look like, though, you were that great until sort of the end of your college career. It looks like you ran about 10 minutes as a junior. And then senior year, you run 422 and 937. Looks like, like you were like 36th in the state meeting cross country and seventh in track. But um, were you pretty much consistent from seventh grade through, like running track and cross country? Yeah, I'm really not like a superstar runner at all. I found the marathon and I love that. I did not run in college. Um, I was sort of sort of recruited to go to Navy as like recruited as you can be to run there. I ended up getting hurt over our indoctrination, like basic summer or basic training over the summer, had a stress fracture and the cross country coach kept rushing me back. And I just really wasn't getting better. I wasn't performing well. I couldn't consistently run because I just was going too fast and kept having setbacks. So ultimately it just wasn't fun for anymore. And I bailed on the whole NCAA thing. Um, so that's when uh, I bumped up to the marathon and uh, I just fell in love with that distance. It was more of an individual thing. I was on the marathon club at Navy. So I had some guys to run with, but I also had chemistry labs to balance. So I missed a lot of practices. So I did a lot of running on my own after school. And that distance is where I kind of just fell in love with it and stayed. So I wasn't a super fast guy. I didn't even run in the NCAA. 
That's another reason why I love you. Neither did I. So, um, it, it's just amazing. I mean, it's, I was reading you train sometimes. I mean, it sounds like whenever you can based on the, in the work schedule, but you were, you know, just a guy going out and waking up at three 30 in the morning before you won Baltimore that one year. So, yeah, that's what we had. To I mean, do. There, I there's, there's just so many though. runners that, that, that it's so. a passion for them and they do it because they love it. And I, I, your wife, which you met at a high school cross country camp, so it's yeah. that she's a runner because I don't think <laughs> she's the better runner. She ran at Georgetown. She was all American. Um, she was, she uh, had like an Ohio high school state record for a period of time in the two mile. She went 10, 15. She almost caught me. Um, and so she's definitely the better runner of, of the two of us. And now with her job at Under Armour, she's still like super engaged in the industry, really understands it. Uh, so, so it's great. Well, that's amazing. You guys have any kids? Like the kid, I'm, I want to get my no. hands on, on your child. It's going to be not kids yet. Superstar genetics. <laughs> we'll see how fast they can go. Maybe, maybe they'll play some football. We'll see. <laughs> oh, one last thing I almost forgot. So here in Baltimore, it was like a cupless race. There was no water on the course. You had to carry your own water bottle. So I'd heard about your trifecta that you were going for a few days before. Then I also read in the paper that there was, that there was no water bottles. I'm like, are they going to have elite water bottles? I, I, I threw it out there that I would help try to give you water, but people on the message board were giving me a hard time. They're like, Robert, you didn't do anything. Did you? I was like, Hey, I said I would go help. No one contacted me, but I, I saw a clip of you, I guess on the local newscast, it looked like you were carrying your own water bottle. Did you have to carry your own water for 26 miles? Yeah, I carried it. So my thing was, I don't want to delegitimize this effort in any way. So I didn't know if like receiving like a strenuous course support would delegitimize this or whatever for any, any reason for me. It, yeah, I carried a water bottle the entire time. I used it more as a cup. I started with a full water bottle. I ran the first four miles uphill and immediately dumped it. I was like, <laughs> I'm not carrying this anymore. Uh, and they had basically big coolers or like big, uh, like, you know, on the like soccer bench, those big, 40 gallon things of water. And the idea was you would just roll up to one with your water bottle and fill it up. And that was how water was done at that race. So I did that. I just found those out on the course. They were, I had no idea where they were going to be. It was very random, very inconsistent. I couldn't tie my goose up. And then I basically used my water bottle as a cup because I didn't want to be carrying water around the course. It's just, just, I don't know why carry five pounds if you don't have to. So I just dealt with it. And honestly, for me, um, like uh, in my experience in my career and my military career, I mean, you just deal with what you have. You can't really overthink it. You have a job to do and you need to get it done. And you just don't overthink the small stuff, uh, especially stuff that doesn't matter, like carrying water. It was, it was fun. But are you losing time? Are you stopping to like fill it up? Or yeah. You- yeah. I lost, um, I mean, not like a, a, an enormous amount of time, but I probably spent 30 seconds combined, like stopping and, filling a little thing, watching it trickle out and then drink in and then moving on. Yeah. Well, I think your military training definitely helps you. Like you can't control it. So what's the point of complaining about it? And I bet every day, right at Walter Reed, I mean, you must, you know, I think you're tough, but you see people dealing with, you know, life, you know, battlefield injuries and stuff like that. It must be in some ways inspiring, right? To work, it's to very work. humbling. And yeah, yeah, I take care of the toughest people in the world. It's a true privilege. It really is amazing. So every day it is very, very humbling and it really puts things into perspective. Um, and that's really true across the field of medicine. Uh, we have the opportunity to just work with extraordinary people who are dealing with extraordinary circumstances. And 
everybody just deals with it in their own way, obviously, but it's just so humbling and so special to be a part of that. I don't take a single thing like that for granted. Yeah. So how you have, you're in your residency. How many years are in are you and how many more years do you have to go? Four years in two to go. And how orthopedics work is I'm in a six-year program. There's some five-year programs out there. I have some research time built in that with Walter Reed kind of being the uh, flagship of military medicine, um, we have the opportunity um, to, or or almost obligation to do some research. Um, And then after that, you do fellowship training where there's what you train in orthopedics. So you train in everything. This is hand, foot, and ankle, spine, trauma, um, pediatrics. And then there's certain procedures that every orthopedically trained surgeon should be able to do. Um, and then beyond that, you further specialize. So you do a fellowship with an, an additional year of training, which is where you specialize in your like hand, your sports, your foot and ankle, your trauma. So I just put an application for a, a trauma fellowship. That's what I want to train in and how I hope to serve. And, and then you have nine years of service right after the, after the two. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. I owe time for the Academy and then for medical school. I was on the military scholarships. So, uh, the, we, we pay back in time and I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Do you think you'll stay at Walter Reed or will they move you, you know, fly you all over? Is it like that? Yeah. So that it's, uh, once I'm done with residency, it's unknown where I'll end up. I'll be at Walter Reed for the duration of my residency, but then, um, depending on fellowship and then where I'm stationed, uh, it's, it's uncertain at this point. I can be sent anywhere, including like, um, overseas okay cool well i really appreciate it jordan you i found your um the three races was inspiring your nation service is inspiring so thanks so much give your give your wife yeah a big thank hug you for thank me. you for your time <laughs> will do i, I want to get the uh, prototype number five i want to be the first per, fifth person to wear them i've never worn a super <laughs> i'm trying to support oh Baltimore. really I'm, I, I'm living in the last street in, in the city of baltimore i i love my under armor <laughs> try to support the, the city. Cause you know, they're a big, um, you know, the Baltimore's had its struggles. So they're a big, big part of the community here. So. Yeah. Seeing Under Armour's role in Baltimore and the community and just Under Armour's story, like their kind of commitment to their athletes and developing superior products ha- has been exciting to be a part of. So I, I'm not a sponsored athlete. Um, and, but I'm a huge fan of them. And obviously my wife's invested in the, she works there. I'll do anything for her. Right. And for the record, I'm not, this is no, this is not sponsored by Under Armour or anything like that. But when I moved, <laughs> when I moved here, Under Armour had just come out with the prices. And I told people, I was like, yeah, I'm running Under Armour. I actually like, they used to have a much softer shoe than the one I most recently tried. I loved it. It was like yeah. black. I could wear it with my, I don't, I'm kind of worried about my styling now. I wear it with my blue jeans if I'm going into a store too. I could wear it all the time. But people are like, they don't have shoes. Like, yeah, they do. They're, they're coming out with them. And now they've apparently got a pretty good super shoe, 230 for three marathons in three days. So. Yeah, I've learned how hard it is to get in the run game. It's just years and years of R&D, you know? Well, good. All right, well, congratulations, and maybe we'll see you at the trials. That should be your goal now. Everyone thinks that if you can run <laughs> three and 230, you can do one and under 218. I would love to. You know, this whole thing is just seeing how far I can take it, see how far we can go. So it's it's a goal. It's out there. But I just we'll see what kind of circumstances line up, and we'll see if we're able to hit it. Yeah. I actually remember being in college – and my roommates were all on the team at Princeton trying, they were trying to get me to come out. And I was like, it's like, I'm almost a junior. I'm like, I'm like, okay, maybe I could run the first year and be on the JV team. And then maybe the next year, but 
I had I, so one point I got a, a sheet of paper and I put down my goals like run the JV this year, then make the varsity. But at the bottom of the sheet, it was Olympic trials marathon. Like that was, I kind of figured out what it was per mile. I'm like, that seems doable because I can know I can run like one mile way faster than that. But never made the goal. But it, you know, it's the journey that counts. So exactly, and having those goals and working towards them. I mean. And especially when you set them that high. I mean, come on. I mean, how much higher can you set your goal? <laughs> you know? That, well, that's uh, what that, I thought was cool about you was you said you weren't worried about it because you knew that you were doing the best that you could. You were focused. You were in on those races. You were running hard. The 230 goal was just sort of to keep you honest, but you knew you're out there and you're giving it your all. And if you exactly. give it your all. And that's, that's what it was all about. about. This was, yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. I better let you go. You've probably got people's lives to save or ankles, to, or bones to heal. So take care. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Really appreciate your time. Thank you.